Amen. Well, since we have an anointed man of God in the house, Elder yeah. David, why don't you stand up and just pray for us? Amen. Well, good evening, saints. It is Thanksgiving week in more ways than one for me. To start with, I'm thankful to be back at LCM. I missed you guys greatly. Uh, It's good to be here. Secondly, it's a holiday week, and I look forward to seeing every one of you who is able to stop by our home on Thursday. That's important to us. It's a long-standing tradition, and you are all welcome. Lastly, this Bible study tonight is going to be profoundly impactful. There's a lot to be thankful for. When I was here last on a Monday, you guys were studying Joash. Seemed like we got Joash into gear. The amazing men that are on my left and my right, they've been working all the way through the reigns of Amaziah and Uzziah and Jotham. That's a monumental task. I can't tell you how proud I am to have such capable sons that they can teach through subjects that I've watched pastors avoid for 30 years. Things have been so well in my absence that I should probably consider staying away an awful lot more. Be that as it may, we're here tonight. The DCD, the Legio Fulminata, the Aswan Church, we're back together. And we're going to be covering the reign of Ahaz tonight. Somebody say, Shut the front door. Shut the front door. That's our unofficial title tonight. It's kind of my habit, and y'all know that, to have the sexy grandma on the front row begin reading. So we're going to read chapter 28, every crazy name, and uh, then we're going to hop into the text, and I think, I think this is going to be a good one. Amen. Amen. You ready, Jen? Uh, read it with confidence. Perfect Hebrew diction, enunciation. Your chronology needs to be perfect. <laughs> Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and also made cast idols for worshiping the Baals. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnon and and sacrificed his sons in the fire. Following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites, he offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. Therefore the Lord his God handed him over to the king of Aram. The Armenians defeated him and took many of his people as prisoners and brought them to, to Damascus. He was also given into the hands of the king of Israel, 
who inflicted heavy casualties on him. And one day, Pekah, son of Remaliah, king, killed 120,000 soldiers in Judah. Because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Zikri, an Ephraimite warrior, killed Masaiah, the king of, I'm sorry, Masaiah, the king's son. As, as we come, the officers in the charge of the palace, and Elkanah second to the king. The Israelites took captive from their kinsmen 200,000 wives, sons, and daughters. They also took a great deal of plunder, which they carried back to Samaria. But a prophet of the Lord named Oded was there, and he went okay. out to meet the okay. army when it returned to Samaria. He said to them, Because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you have slaughtered them in a rage that reaches to the heavens. And now you intend to make the men and women of Judah and Jerusalem your slaves? But aren't you also guilty of sins against the Lord your God? Now listen to me. Send back your fellow countrymen you have taken as prisoners, for the Lord's fierce anger rests on you. Then some of the leaders of Ephraim... Azariah, son of Jehonanan, Berkiah, son of Meshhilmoth, Azariah, son of Shalom, and Amasa's son of Hadali, confronted those who were arriving from war. You must not bring those prisoners here, they said, or we will be guilty before the Lord. Do you intend to add to our sin and our guilt? For our guilt is already great, and his fierce anger rests on Israel. So the soldiers gave up the prisoners and plunder in the presence of the officials and all the assembly. The men designated by name took the prisoners, and from plunder they clothed all who were naked. They provided them with clothes and sandals, food and drink, and healing balm. All those who were weak they put on donkeys. So they took them back to their fellow countrymen at Jericho, in the city of Palms, and returned to Samaria. At that time, King I'm sorry. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. The Edomites had come and attacked Judah and carried away prisoners, while the Philistines had raided towns in the foothills in the Negev of Judah. They captured and occupied Beth Shemesh, Ajalon, and Girdoth, as well as Soko, Timna, and Gizmo. Their surrounding villages. The Lord had humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had promoted wickedness in Judah and had been most unfaithful to the Lord. Tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, came to him, but he gave him trouble instead of help. Ahaz took some of the things from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and from the princes and presented them to the king of Assyria, but that did not help him. In this time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. Wow. He offered sacrifices to the God of Damascus, who had defeated him. For he thought, since the God of the kings of Aram have helped them, I will sacrifice to them, so they will help me. But they were in his downfall, and the downfall of all of Israel. Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and took them away. He shut the doors of the Lord's temple and set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. In every town in Judah, he built high places to burn sacrifices to other gods and provoke the Lord, the God of their fathers, to anger. The other events of his reign and all 
his ways from beginning to end are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of Jerusalem, but he was not placed in the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah, his son, succeeded him as king. Wow. Mm. What a dismal chapter, huh? There's so much to be gleaned here. I think... uh, I think we are to have our faithful reader of the scroll kick us off. We're just going to pick up in verse 1 and uh, read down to verse 4, and then we'll begin to set some historical context for you. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of the king of Israel and also made cast idols for worshiping the bells. He burned sacrifices in the valley of ben and sacrificed his son to the fire, fire, following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Wow. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places, on the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. Needless to say, this is not the way you would want your narrative to begin. Notice that there's a progression of sin in these first four verses. He broke from the right ways of David. So that's very much like disregarding the leaders that have set an example before you. In doing so, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Saw how that happened? (laughs) Next, he begins imitating Samaritan idolatry. He's acting exactly as the Samaritan kings do. Fourth, he burned, somebody say burned, Burned. his own sons in the fire. Next, fifth, he proliferated idolatry everywhere. Sin never stops where it starts. You know that the law, it warns us about the pervasive nature of sin. Yeah. Both Testaments, our law of Moses and the Gospels warn about it. The epistles warn about it. And together as a family, we want to look at just a few verses on that subject. I'm going to hand out three scriptures. Who wants to take the first? Rob, why don't you get Deuteronomy 19, 11 through 13? Oh, Rosales, if you get James chapter 1, verse 14 and verse 15. Our last one for this moment is going to be Matthew 23:15. Glenn, why don't you get it? You can pick up in Deuteronomy when you're there. Deuteronomy 19, 11 through 13. But if a man hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, assaults and kills him, and then flees to one of these cities. So pause here for just a moment. We're about to speak about protocol for cities of refuge when a man has done something that was genuinely guilty. But if you notice right from the beginning, it says if a man hates. Now we all know that emotions can run awry and often don't line up with the will of God. But it quite quickly picks up from hating to lying in wait and then moves to assaulting and killing. It's almost as if Moses was familiar with the story of Cain and Abel or familiar with the story of the human heart. Keep reading. The elders of his town shall sin for him. Bring him back from the city and hand him over to the avenger of blood to die. 
Show him no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood, so that it may go well with you. So that it may go well with you. Show him no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood. And it clearly lays down the fact that the community of God must purge sin from within us. Because one man's sin, idolatry that is tolerated, things that we give tacit approval to, affect us all. It's pervasive. It spreads. It's often compared to yeast for a reason. What starts as personal sin always ends up being the community sin. If the community does not deal with the man's personal sin. We have a responsibility to each other. Look, we're going to move on to some other passages and illustrate the pervasive nature of this, but I want to give you kind of a mnemonic. Anybody in here a gun fan? I mean, we are in Texas. Of all of the guns that you could love, the 1911 style Colt 45 has got to be one of the all-time best. Yeah, I see men shaking their heads. Deuteronomy 1911 will kill you faster than a Colt 1911. You can remember it that way. What you allow to sit in your heart and meditate on, it will move and progress you towards murder faster than you can assemble a Colt 1911. Yeah? What's our next passage? Who is James? James 1, 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now you see when you see that sin starts with a desire, just a desire, and it results in death. We have a slide we want to show you. This is the um, progress of sin when it is growing. It starts at the top as a desire. It's the smallest piece in that pyramid. The desire is the very smallest seed of sin, but then it drags and entices. After that, sin has birthed. That is the point where sin is birthed. After desire has dragged and enticed. After sin sin is birthed, it grows. And then after it grows, it brings death. Now everyone can see death whenever it happens, but notice it starts from the smallest of areas, just a desire. Now what's interesting about that, we all know this is true in our life, correct? Yes. yes. All of us have felt that to a little to a little extent, or maybe a lot of extent. <laughs> More but than I'd like. What we don't often notice is that that death is not limited to the person that had the desire. Wow. Has any of you ever sinned? And you can, you know, you, you wake up in the morning and you you messed up. You sin in an area you knew you weren't supposed to. And then for some reason, the rest of your day is just chaotic. There's no shalom in the workplace. There's no shalom in your home. No shalom in your family. It's because that death has an effect on everyone around you. Now, it's incredible that Ahaz's evil desires that go unchecked can cause death to so many. One man's unchecked desire is going to cause death for a nation. Sin starts on a personal level and then spreads to the community and eventually the whole world if it's not dealt with. Now, how do we know? What's the the plain, easy example? Adam. Sin started in one man and ended up into the entire world. Now let's read from Matthew 23, 15. 
Did somebody have that one? It's all right. Man, that is in a chapter that most people have a heading over that says something like seven woes. <laughs> That's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Now, it's not obvious how what we're talking about is referenced in this verse, and I get that. Until you look at the original language. The word for hell in this verse is Gehenna in Greek. Here we have the DLB Greek lexicon where it explains it for us. Hell. Gehenna, a Hellenized transliteration of Hebrew, Hinoam Valley. Same place Ahaz was killing his sons. A place of trash fires, perpetually burning rubbish. Hence the figurative extension of a place of eternal punishment. Listen, by using this word, and Jesus used it quite frequently, he's making a historical reference Back to Ahaz. I hope in my coming days here, I'll be able to show you parallels between Matthew 22, 23, 24, and 25, and this, but Jesus himself is drawing your attention to it. He didn't say they make twice the sons of Hades. He said they make twice the sons of Gehenna, the very place where Ahaz was sacrificing children to foreign gods. So then this passage is loaded with meaning. Okay? And I, and I want to help you with just a few off the top. <clears throat> Making a convert to what these corrupt leaders were, converting them to be what they, the leaders, were, was like putting the convert in hell or Gehenna. Wow. Mm. If you make more of what you are, then you are putting them in Gehenna the same way you're in Gehenna. Mm. Now, do you know who understood that? They did. Yes. <laughs> You're beginning to understand why they wanted to kill him. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Making a convert to this kind of corrupt leadership was doubling the effects of hell or Gehenna. He said, you make them twice the sons of Gehenna that you are. Can you imagine how heavy that is now? The effects of sin spread across land and sea, he said. You travel across land and sea to make proselytes to make them more like Gehenna than you already are. In other words, when we don't rightly handle the responsibilities that God has given us, then we are extending hell or Gehenna into the lives of all who are around us. No matter how well-intentioned you are. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? Yeah. 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 The lexicon that we chose said Gehenna was a figurative representation of what we would think about as hell. We want to submit to you tonight that it's significantly more than just figurative. We have a slide that we want to show you. I want you to consider the fact that 11 times Jesus used the word Gehenna to describe this. And one time his brother James did as well. See up here on the screen, the Strong's number 1067 is in reference. Each of these occurrences 
rolling through the gospel are many of the passages that you grew up reading about learning about the kingdom of God and those that do not stand it. It's extraordinary the number of times that Jesus himself refers to this very spot. It's profoundly important to consider when thinking about the implications of Ahaz's sin. Mm. It literally is thought of as extending eternal punishment into the world in their day, in their time. That these actions were ushering hell upon God's people. When the spreading of hell or Gehenna is going on, this always invites a response from the living God. Because he cares for his people. He is fighting for the kingdom of God to be ushered in, not the kingdom of Gehenna. Listen, you've heard that this is my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. That's a different word for hell. That's, that's Hades. But Jesus, standing on the Mount of Olives, can see the Valley of Gehenna where he issues the Great Commission. I, I want you to understand what's going on here and what's being juxtaposed. It'll, it'll change the way you read Matthew 24. He is standing inside of the temple on the Mount of Olives, staring out the valley where the house of David, who should rightly lead, had offered their sons in the fire. Wow. And he is offering his sons to something entirely different and saying to go into the world and make them what you are. Yeah. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Proximity of these things has an effect on the way that you read them. But Ahaz is the first recorded person to sacrifice his sons in the Hinoan Valley. Valley in Greek is Gi, and then the corruption of the word Hinoam is Hena. Gehenna, Hinoan Valley. I hope you all will keep that connection always. An additional detail while you're meditating on that. This practice has been around for a long time. This is the first time we've ever seen a son of David sacrificing his children. Yeah. So we have two sons of David speaking about the exact same valley in a different kind of sacrifice that was required. As we progress, keep in mind that the original authors remembered the first son of David who had committed this kind of action in the Hinoam Valley. They had it in mind while he was speaking. Why don't we pick up in verse 5? And read on down through 6, Brother Linton. Therefore, the Lord his God... Wait, hold on. Say that again. <laughs> therefore. Therefore. Man, if it says therefore, you've got to figure out what it's there for, right? Yeah. Right. Therefore, the Lord his God did what? Handed him over to the king of Aram. He handed him over because he went through an unchecked progression of sin. Man, sometimes when it gets to that point, it's like, what's happening to me? I don't know what's going on. Pay attention to that progression of sin and you can easily see why God is saying, therefore, I'm doing this. Keep going. The Arameans defeated him and took many of his people as prisoners and brought them to Damascus. It was also given into the hands of the king of Israel who inflicted heavy casualties on him. In one day, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, killed 120,000 soldiers in Judah because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Now put that in perspective for a second. How many were killed? 120,000 soldiers in Judah. And, and how big of a span of time? One day. day. 120,000 soldiers of Judah killed in one day. That is more deaths than 40 9-11 events. September 11th. That is twice the death toll of the entire Vietnam War. 
which was roughly between the years 1964 to 1972. That's a long time. And in one day, double the amount dies. This happens in a single day. And just a little bit more info, the Hebrew doesn't say killed 120,000 soldiers. That is the NIV dynamic translation. The Hebrew literally says they killed 120,000 Chaim Benay, valiant sons of Judah. They killed 120,000 valiant sons. Those were capable warriors. Man, what kind of tragedy is it? It's one thing to have your soldiers killed. It's another thing to have 120,000 of your valiant sons being killed. That is a terrible tragedy. Look, I want to hand out a few scriptures. Assad, you get Deuteronomy 32.30. JJ, you're going to get Deuteronomy 11.16.21. Nick Rosales, you're going to get Deuteronomy 6.4-9. And... Let's see. Uh, Hayes, you're going to get 1 Chronicles 28.9-10. And this is on the topic of miracles. Now, we are well aware that miracles, this is not a cessationist group. We believe in miracles. We believe God can multiply the bread that we use. And yet, depends on which side of the line you're standing on. If you are right with the Lord, the Lord can absolutely perform a miracle in your favor. If you're not, the Lord can perform a miracle the wrong way against your favor. I believe in miracles. Ow! You sinful thing. (laughs) Who's got Deuteronomy 32.30? Okay, think through this for a minute then. What is Deuteronomy promising? When you see that you have sufficient numbers to win, and one of the enemy is chasing thousands of you, it's because God has given you over to them. This is a miracle in the wrong direction. As Elder Charlie once told me when I was a very young man, Son, you're on the right road, but you headed the wrong direction. (laughs) It's because Ahaz's destructive influence and the community's rampant idolatry had to be limited by God. There are promises of God that are in effect, and these are a threat to them. So God is actually, although He's promised the nation something, is actually working against this leader to limit His influence. Now remember, the instruction from the law, because it is everything to a household, a community, and even the world. We're going to hand it out so that we can set on it for a while. And you're going to go, oh, I know, I know, I know. You need to think about how to put this into practice in your life. Not enough to know it, not enough to write it on a leather garment and wrap it around your arms. Not enough to put it in a box on your head. You have to do this. The world at large depends on it. Ibrahim, take Deuteronomy 11, 16 through 21. No, we handed them out? I'm sorry. Who had it? Deuteronomy 11, 16 through 21. Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you. He will shut the heavens so that it will not rain 
Pause there for me, JJ. Who loves Elijah? Anybody in the room? Were you blessed at the conference learning more about Elijah and Elisha? I was. Have you ever considered the fact that when it shut, he prays and shuts up the skies or then later prays and causes it to rain again, that somebody else was on the receiving end of that? In fact, it was the vast majority of the nation that was God's people. Mm. We're reading about the one man and we place ourselves in the one man's category so quickly. So easily, without a real assessment of our own relationship to God's word. The vast majority of Israel was experiencing under Elijah what Moses said would happen when they were enticed to follow other gods or worship other gods alongside him. Keep going, JJ. Real quick, get why, though. Is it just to punish them? Is it just to grind them in the ground? No, God is limiting their influence because they are Uh, pervasively controlled by sin. Mm. And he doesn't want that to spread through his community. And you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land of the Lord swore to give your forefathers. Yeah. As many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. Now verse 21 just gave us the answer as to why God gives this prescription. It wasn't because he was looking for the opportunity to starve his people. No. It wasn't because he was looking for the opportunity to crush his people. No. It was so that your days and the days of your children... Maybe many in the land. Saints, the propensity is always that a little bit of yeast works its way through the whole batch of dough. That cannot be more true than in generations. God is showing us how to fix our gaze upon Him so that our days in the inheritance that He's pointing us towards may be many. They might be successful. That we might see the promise that God has given us achieved. You know, we're all going to die someday. You think about that from time to time, I'm sure. Would you prefer to die of famine or have lightning strike you? Well, in one sense, you're dead no matter what. What difference does it make? But I bet you would prefer the instantaneous death to the long, slow death, right? God will work to limit the pervasiveness of sin in a community. And if somebody is out there murdering their sons and they die quickly, that's, that's one thing. But the other way that you can die and you can kill your own sons is to simply not teach them as you walk along the road and when you lay down and when, when you're moving in and out of cities and in and out of the house. They're dying of famine of God's Word just the same as if we put them in a fire in the Hinoam Valley. Both are true. One seems more egregious than the other, but at least it's quicker. We've got Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your heart. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home. Excuse me. And when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, 
Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now notice the similarity between the two passages in Deuteronomy. Do you see all of the similarities there? What's going to happen in Deuteronomy is Moses is giving these instructions because Moses is not going to enter the land. Moses is giving these instructions because the people themselves will enter, but they'll only be there for so long. Moses and God knew that there was a cancerous disease called sin, and it happens to spread (laughs) rapidly amongst a community and more than that amongst generations. It is very easy for one generation to spring up and totally forget the cure to the disease. And that's why Moses is giving the cure to the disease. It is the word of God. You know, when I, when I went into Africa, they asked, do you want the malaria cure or do you want the preventative? I'm like, I want both of them. I don't even want to get the chance of catching it. And then if I have to, I will take the cure after. That is what the word is. It is both the cure and the preventative to this problem. And the reason why God brings judgment over and over on the Israelites after is because he's trying to limit the amount of sin that is going throughout the generations. Now, this is a motivated body, and we're very excited about it. We don't want to bring a heavy word to you tonight. This is to prevent us from making a mistake that the world is making all around us. But there is a subtle problem here. Ahaz is as wicked as the day is long, but he's also an anointed king with a promise. See, we easily identify wickedness where we don't see those things. But where you understand the promise, where you can quote the word, it's easy to become wicked in this way. In fact, Deuteronomy 29 warns us about it. Do not think in hearing the words of this oath That you have a blessing on yourself and so persist in going your own way, I will never be willing to forgive you for that. See, the house of David has an unbreakable promise, but that doesn't mean that Ahaz will get to be a part of it. Mm. And certainly his murdered sons don't. Yeah. Yeah? Let's look at another promise to a son. That was 1 Chronicles 28. Did we hand it out? 9 and 10. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a temple as a sanctuary. Be strong and be the word. Could there be a greater calling than building the temple? Could there be a man that was more blessed with wisdom and a visible appearance of the Lord than Solomon? I mean, his name, Jedediah, is beloved of the Lord. It's like David number two, right? The the mini-me. The problem with it is, because of that great calling, he knew his son would be susceptible to resting on the calling. Does that make sense to you? Yes. Okay, now you know why we're telling you and not preaching this somewhere where they wouldn't care. Okay? We're going to get back into our text tonight. That was just a wake-up call of the importance of actually applying the teachings in this house about sons. Okay? And if yours are little, it's definitely harder, but it's the best time to start, and it's the most forgiving time you'll get. Because when they're 15, you'll have to deal with all the seeds that were sown or not sown previously, 
and their little tape recorders. Everything you get wrong, they will remember. Right now, you can make the, now's the time to practice, people. If you drop them on their head, you can tell them later that they did it and they won't even know. But when they're 15, they'll remember it forever. Start right now. Amen? Let's pick up in verse 7. I know the English here can be a bit confusing. 200,000 that is comprised of wives, sons, and daughters. Just put this very clearly, the most vulnerable elements of their society. This is astounding. This is a serious threat to Judah continuing as a people group. This is not just a loss that is inflicting pain and grieving this is an actual threat to their continued existence and survival there's not that many of them and to lose 200,000 look the event reminds the three of us a bit of the scenario in Judges where Benjamin is rightly judged for their wicked behavior despite their calling and they were left with so few women that the other tribes had to provide wives for them Otherwise, the tribe would have ceased to exist. You getting the kind of seriousness of what's happening here? Mm-hmm. To gain some more historical context on this, we were faced with a real choice. We really wanted to read to you and teach you Isaiah chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8. And then once we got through 8, we were thinking, might as well do 9 as well. <laughs> because those are extremely pertinent to what's happening here. But instead, we put a few details on slides for you. Okay, that way you can take pictures and you can go back and study it. So to start with, in our first slide, the prophet Isaiah's ministry is spanning these kings of Judah. His commissioning is in the year of Uzziah. He's prophesying during Jotham's reign. Most of what is happening in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9 is during Ahaz's reign. Okay, so... When you go back and read that, try to place it with Ahaz. Then, the things that he prophesies about that are positive, they take place in Hezekiah's reign. Okay, so that's the historical context. The events that we're summarizing, they're important to this story. Let's take the next slide. I'm just going to walk you through 6, 7, and 8 quickly. Is that okay? You all interested in the book of Isaiah? Okay, in chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, Isaiah receives his revelation. He sees the glory of the Lord fill the temple, and he also gets his own mouth purified. Right? Everybody remember that story? Well, in verses 9 through 11, Isaiah is told that the people of Judah are calloused and that they will not understand what he's saying until the cities are destroyed. That's caused a lot of confusion, and I'm going to come back to that. Lastly, the cities that are being referenced are in the northern territories of Israel. They're Samaria. He's speaking to Judah, but what he is saying is, this people is not going to understand what you're saying until I have brought Samaria into destruction. 
It's not talking about destroying Judah. Now, it's because Judah's heart is calloused that the people and the king couldn't receive what he was saying. God is speaking a life-giving word to them, but they can't hear it. That is why Jesus quotes that very passage. Are you following me? That callousness remains true until Samaria is destroyed. I'm going to give you another hint. That is why Israel is hardened in part until the fullness of the Gentiles is dealt with. Okay? After seeing Samaria go into captivity, then Isaiah's words would be understood. See, when some of the prophetic things that Jesus says come about, Zechariah says, their eyes will be opened and they'll mourn. These are cyclical patterns that these great men of God told you you would hear last week and we're going to present more in the weeks to come. Let's do Isaiah chapter 7. In Isaiah chapter 7, we have a lot of funny king names. King Rezin of Aram and King Pekah of Israel. They allied themselves against Judah. So we have a Samaritan king and we have a king of Aram fighting against Judah. In verse 6 of chapter 7, they say what they want to do. They want to install their own king in Zion instead of David. Okay? In verse 7, God has a really funny response. It will not happen. (laughs) I love that. In verse 20, he uses Isaiah to prophesy something. I'm going to hire a razor from beyond the river. And I'll use that razor to shave these guys. Okay? He, He is literally talking about using a nation as a tool in his hand to deal with these enemies that are attacking Judah. Now, Judah has the promise, but Judah's not innocent themselves. This is where Christians get it twisted. Having the promise does not make you innocent. It just means you have a promise. So God's word will never fail. God said something would happen, and it's going to happen. What we're reading about tonight is during this time period, and Ahaz is utterly unfaithful. But God is always faithful to his word. You should think about that in light of something Paul said to Timothy. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful to his word. His word will not fail. God announced through Isaiah in advance that he was going to use Assyria to destroy Samaria and take its people into captivity. Isaiah is prophesying about an Assyrian invasion that would carry Samaria off into captivity. That takes us to chapter 8. Are you ready for it? In chapter 8, verse 4, a time frame is being set for the destruction of Pekah, king of Israel, and Rezin, king of Aram. The specific time frame is that Isaiah is going to go to Mrs. Isaiah and they're going to produce a little Isaiah with a funny name. And before he can say mama or daddy, then you will see Isaiah's prophecy coming about. Do you know who heard that? Ahaz. That's not that long to wait. I prayed for my children to start speaking and then as soon as they did, I prayed they would be quiet. In verses 7 and 10, Of chapter 8, 
Assyria will destroy those two kings, but also present a real threat to God's prom- to, to Jerusalem. But God promises He's going to defend Jerusalem. Isaiah laid all of that out in those three chapters. So he's told, he also tells Ahaz, ask for a sign. Ahaz refuses. That might seem noble to you, like I don't need a sign. No, that, that's not the issue here. The prophet wanted him to ask for a sign. He actually succeeded in angering both Isaiah and God because he refused to do it. The sign was given that the child would be born to Isaiah and the words concerning Pekah and Rezin would be fulfilled before the child could speak. God wanted Ahaz to understand that. He wanted the nation to understand that. While two invading kings would get destroyed by Assyria, the faithlessness of Ahaz would cause Assyria to be a real threat to Judah. And Isaiah foresaw it. God affirmed that he would defend Jerusalem. Now, tonight, at 44 minutes in, I can't walk you through this in its eschatological implications. But when you plot out these cities... The cities that Assyria begins to take, the threatening of the two northern kings, it ought to remind you of the battle of Gog and Magog. It also ought to remind you of Jerusalem being surrounded by our enemies. You ought to research that or buy us a cup of coffee and we'll help you do it. (laughs) Let's take the last part of chapter 8. Isaiah was warned in verses 11 and 12, do not fear what these people fear. There would be a time of confusion since his words were not being understood. And you've got to love God. You'll understand the words when I fulfill the words, yeah. is basically what he's saying. Yeah. He says, do not fear what these people fear. Come on. Do not buy into their conspiracies. My God, it's like he's talking about COVID. <laughs> or the and vote counts. Yeah. And every other crazy thing. Shut the front door. Well, we'll come back to that. Verses 13 through 15. The workings of God in this matter would be a stumbling stone. Do you recognize that as a Newer Testament quote as well? It's Because there are strong cyclical patterns here. My favorite part is in verses 16 through 18. He tells Isaiah, bind up this testimony among the disciples. They are going to be signs and symbols. If nobody else understands, your disciples will understand. And if you are not there personally, they will be there as a reminder. This is what God wanted. Look, the words given to Isaiah would eventually prove true. But in our chapter tonight, Judah has just lost terribly to Israel and Aram. You just read it. 120,000 deaths, 200,000 in captivity. This is why it was so important to be told not to be afraid ahead of time and to not buy into conspiracies, but to show faith. What you're about to see next in these next few verses is that God sends a prophet to turn the course of Judah's future. And it's not because they deserve it. It's because he made a promise to them and he's preserving the nation. You're even going to see some of the Samaritans repent. But it doesn't mean God's not going to judge Samaria. He's already said it would happen. It just means that those specific Samaritans might receive mercy. Yeah? Yeah. Look, in the coming weeks, you're going to see 
the king of Israel, Pekah, replaced by a guy named Hoshea, and then Assyria comes in and takes all of Samaria captive. All of this is laid out in Isaiah 6, 7, and 8. Isaiah and his disciples bear witness from the beginning of the prophecy all the way through the days of Hezekiah when it happens. They, they're there to say that what God announced in advance has now come to pass. There's going to be a role for that in the church, I promise you. Come on, man. That's why it's important that we don't just decide that it's not knowable or understandable. It's your job to seek the Lord about his coming so Amen. that it doesn't surprise you like a thief in the night. Amen. No amount of unfaithfulness on Ahaz's part will reverse God's irrevocable promise to the house of David. It's irrevocable. But he is causing hell to be spread on earth because of his faithlessness. Mm -hmm. I'm very excited that Hezekiah is our next chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get back in the text. He said to them, Because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hands. But you have slaughtered them in a rage that reaches to heaven. So the people that are going to war against Judah, God has a serious problem with. God is using Samaria to discipline faithless Ahaz. And yet, God is concerned with the severity that Samaria carried it out with. He is using Samaria as a tool. Think of the the sovereignty of God in this. He's using this nation as a tool to discipline His own people. And yet He is angry with the people that He chose to discipline them. It's almost like God can do two things at once, right? And if you want to think of more cyclical patterns of prophecy, how many times do you think that's going to happen in the future? Israel will be judged and God will come back even more with those that He uses to judge them. It's actually pretty hilarious. I'm going to use Assyria as a hired razor to crush Samaria. But before I do that, I'm going to use Samaria to crush parts of faithless Judah. I mean, God's got a few tools in his tool belt. Yeah. Yeah. What's ironic, though, is that Samaria's fate has already been sealed. Yeah. Isaiah said it in Isaiah chapter <laughs> 6 in the reign of Jotham. And this is Jotham's son. Samaria's fate has already been sealed. Isaiah said they would go into captivity under Assyria. This is a situation in which no one is right except the Word of God. We've never been in that kind of situation. (laughs) Let's pick up in verse 10 and read on down to 13. And now you intend to make the men and women of Judah and Jerusalem your slaves. But aren't you as as guilty of sins against the Lord your God? Now listen to me. Send back your fellow countrymen. You've taken his prisoners, for the Lord's fierce anger rests on you. Wow. Just pause for a second here. We have a prophet that we really don't know that much about. But apparently there are still men of God in Samaria that are able to hear from him. Amen. And have the chutzpah to walk up to an army returning in pomp and victory. Not exactly the moment they're the most conciliatory. They're like, I just cut everybody down. What is this one guy in my way? And yet God still has his remnant in Samaria at this point. Then some of the leaders in Ephraim, Azariah, the son of Jehohanan, Berechiah, the son of Meshillimah, yeah. Jehizkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Hadlai, confronted those who were arriving from the war. You must not bring those prisoners here, they said, or we will be 
guilty before the Lord. Do you intend to add our sin and guilt? Add to our sin and guilt? For our guilt is already great, and his fierce anger rests on Israel. So as we mentioned earlier, Samaria's destiny is already set. It is rolling, it is coming about, and it will happen. And we don't have time tonight to talk about national destinies versus personal destinies. But we might as well sum it up just by saying, we don't have to go the way of our nation. If you're planted somewhere, you're not expected to be a reed going the direction of the nation you were planted in. You're expected to be the oak of righteousness that is the minority in the situation. Amen. Even in a nation that was bound for captivity... God had a few men who were willing to stand up for righteousness and were not willing to watch literal captives led to the slaughter. It's almost as if there's a proverb about it. Mm. The judgment on Samaria has already been pronounced as a nation, but these leaders personally may receive mercy because of their own righteous actions. Now, in addition to this, the destiny of Judah is already set. Consider this. They're destined to be saved. But its leaders will receive punishment for their lack of repentance and lack of righteous actions personally. One nation is destined for captivity. The other is destined for salvation. But we have leaders in the one destined for destruction that are receiving mercy. And leaders of the nation that is destined to be saved receiving the consequences of their own unrighteous actions. Tell me God's not fair. Yeah, he, he works it out. But the nation itself will be preserved. See, that's how these national destinies work. And you're still held personally accountable. Let's pick up in verse 14. So the soldiers gave up the prisoners and plundered in the the presence of the officials and all the assembly. The men designated by name took the prisoners. And from the plunder, they they clothed all who were naked. They provided them with clothes and sandals, food (laughs) and drink, and healing balm. All those who were weak. They put on donkeys. So they took them back to their fellow countrymen at Jericho, the city of Palms, and returned to Samaria. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. Man, that is so nice of those Samaritans. <laughs> you know, to provide them with clothes and sandals, food, drink, and healing balm. Where'd their clothes go? <laughs> it's almost like they were just a little ashy and they needed to, you know, <laughs> rub some balm on it. <laughs> the thing we want you to get here, though, is Ahaz sends to the king of Assyria for help. Now, think about that for a second. Ahaz knew from Isaiah's prophecy that Assyria would be the destruction of those nations. He knew that Assyria would be used by God to come and destroy Israel and Aram. But he only listened to the parts he liked, and he misapplied all of it. Nobody does that regarding end times, do they? Now, think through that for a second. Why at this moment does he do that? Samaria has just repaid uh, warfare with a kindness. They've just heard from a prophet and they're being conciliatory. And he calls, he calls up the one nation on earth that he knows is going to take them into captivity. You, you follow me? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nobody's right in this except the word of God. Okay. His motives are not right either. He's not fasting and praying that some of them might be saved. He, they just sent their captives back, and he, he's calling their national enemy saying, Get them! Get them now! Now that they've shown kindness, get them! 
It's like any time you've ever tried to show an olive branch to a dissident couple and they take that opportunity to build a YouTube site or something dedicated to slandering you. Yeah. You know, it's incredible. But we don't rely on the government until we have to. <laughs> yeah. Look, the Lord said that the, he, the Lord, would hire Assyria as a razor to do his work. You Remember what we read in Isaiah? He speaks to Ahaz and says, ask me for a sign. I'm willing to show you what I'm going to do for you. And Ahaz says, no, I don't want to test the Lord. I don't want to do that. I don't want to actually believe in faith. But then he listens to what God says he will use Assyria for. And he decides to go the back route and align himself with Assyria. Ahaz did not trust the Lord. And here he's taking matters into his own hands. Who was supposed to hire Assyria? The Lord. Lord. We're going to see tonight that Ahaz hired Assyria. And it didn't work out for him very well. His day labor crew did did not. (laughs) They stole more than they they built. (laughs) Okay. Hey, what's uh, what's verse 17? The Edomites that were against Solomon had attacked Judah and carried away prisoners, while the Philistines had raided the towns in the foothills and into the hill of Judah. Now, why do you think that the Lord is allowing Ahaz to be squeezed from Samaria in the north, who's just relented a little bit, to Edom in the east. And in fact, the Philistines from the coast, we're getting a 360 degree constrictor move on Ahaz because his behavior is not behavior God can bless. Okay? God's will is still going to be done. Uh, I, look, I, I love Christians that are not involved in politics. I, I'm also often not involved in it. But God is very involved in politics. I mean, we, we need to wake up to that. If you never have before, you should right now. It has a lot to do with how fast a national destiny is accelerated or slowed based on the behavior of the people. And I'm convinced we're living in Samaria and our destruction is already determined. But you as a person, you can escape that. Captured and occupied Beshemesh, Ajalon, and Gedaroth, as well as Soko and Timnah, Soko, Timnah, and Gimzo, with their surrounding villages. The Lord had humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel. Can you imagine a whole nation having to be humbled because of a leader? But don't don't feel too badly for them because Isaiah said the people's hearts were callous. Yeah. So it was not just the the singular leader. I mean, he wouldn't be there if they didn't follow him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going. For he had promoted wickedness in Judah and had been most unfaithful. Listen, Ooh. if you need the modifier before unfaithful, yeah. I mean, if you need a modifier to say not just unfaithful but most, what's more than most? I don't know a word for more than most. Right. He's not moderately unfaithful. He's not somewhat unfaithful. Most is compared to what? <laughs> I mean, that's quite a statement. Yeah. Most unfaithful. Isaiah told Ahaz clearly what the Lord would do. But at every turn, Ahaz did not trust the God who put him in power. This doesn't stop God's word from coming to pass. But it does bring pain and consequence on Ahaz and the people of Judah. It brought Gehenna hell on earth. Does that make sense? Let's pick up in verse 20. King of Assyria came to him, but he gave him trouble instead of help. Mm. Ahaz took up some of the... Big glass drinking a pilsner, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
Because Brother Lynch reads this in verse 21. I want you to notice all of the places that he does take things from and that he doesn't. Keep reading. Ahab took some of the things from the temple of the Lord. Temple of the Lord. Okay, I got it. And from the royal palace. Okay. And from the princes and presented them to the king of Assyria. But that did not help him. So here he's gathering things first from the temple of God. That was the first place that he started to look for bribery material. What he might be able to send to this king, he goes to the house of God, and that's the first place that he looks. Then he takes from the royal palace that has been accumulated by better men than him for generations like Uzziah and Jothan. And then after that, you remember those sons he was burning in the fire? Well, apparently there was a few that were alive, so he went and then took from them to also give to the king of Assyria. Just an interesting note as we keep going. In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful. <laughs> Come on. I found out how you modify unfaithful with something more than more. You say even more unfaithful. Can we get an even even in there? Listen, we're about to move into some backstory that will be helpful to you. But just a couple things that we want to knit together as we continue to proceed. When you're thinking about geopolitics and a leader, the leader represents the people. Do you remember when we were studying about Jotham last week together? He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and yet the hearts of the people did not turn away from idolatry. Ahaz is a representation of what... Israel and Judah have become. This has been a progressive revelation, a progressive work in their hearts, that this is the representation of the callous nature of their hearts. This is why Isaiah describes it this way. It's almost as if God will give people the kind of leader that their hearts desire. It's even possible to think of Ahaz like a pseudo-Messiah and Hezekiah like a genuine Messiah. What? Particularly when you consider that he does some abominable things in the temple. But I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, you know, it's possible to see it that way. We want to show you some backstory. At this point, I'm going to start to read to you from 2 Kings 16, 7 through 18. We're going to interrupt a lot, and my brothers are going to comment on it while I read it to you. So this is starting in verse 7. Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and your vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Now Ahaz is calling himself the servant and vassal of Assyria. When in fact, Assyria... Did he say the vasectomy servant? Might as well. I don't know. It's hard to read that. Assyria was only a tool in the hand of the hand of the Lord. God was going to use Assyria like a tool. And how? Think about this. Ahaz is telling the tool, "I am your servant and vassal." When instead he should be using the tool in faith. But instead he's saying, "I am your vassal." 
And to make things even worse, what does he say to the king of Ara- what does he say to the king of Assyria? Save me! Save me! Can anyone guess what that is in Hebrew? Hosanna! 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 He is crying out to a tool. Hosanna! Come and save me! Verse eighty-nine. It's bad. And Ahaz. It's real bad. Look, I'm sure that Ahaz just said he was just following the word of Isaiah. I mean, that's what... I, I think we need to redefine what we think false prophets are for, for a minute. And um, we're going to stay on track so we finish on time, but this is, this is, it was worth your free price of admission. Um, you ought not think of all false prophets like Balaam or, or goat worshippers somewhere. They're often what Jesus said, many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ. Not the Christ, but the anointed one. The word would be Messiah in Hebrew. They're claiming they have the anointing and the favor of the Lord and they're presenting a direction other than the direction the Lord said. When you think through this, uh, Isaiah is widely received. And he's widely received by the end of his ministry because he's preaching that Jerusalem will be delivered. Jeremiah was not widely received. He's not widely received because he was preaching Jerusalem would not be delivered. Both words were true. But if you put Isaiah in Jeremiah's time, it would have made Isaiah a false prophet because although it's a true word, it was not true for that time period. This is like saying God always wants to forgive. Well, that sounds like a great thing to say unless you're talking to someone that God said, I will not forgive, and then... You've taken a true statement, applied it to a situation in which it's not true, and you are a false prophet. When you think through that, I believe the entire book of Matthew is written to in-house believers. It changes the context of the way that you will read some of that. Now, I said all of that because whatever Ahaz's justification is, In some sense, Assyria is being used to do the things that Isaiah said, but not in the way that God would do it. He thinks he can claim Isaiah's prophecy as justification, and he apparently thinks he can take the gifts dedicated to God and justify it and apply them to the hire of Assyria. Wow. Well, this is literally trading the word of God for the world. And using the word of God to justify it. I don't know. Think TBN. It's done every day in the church world. It's done when we consult worldly psychologists, programs, businessmen instead of God's word. And we pay them for it. How about that? When you take from what belongs to God to make happen what you want to happen and then use the word of God to try to justify it, but it was never the intent or the will of God? Mm. Well, maybe that's why Matthew 7 
says, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Come on. But only he who does the will of my Father. Maybe that's why Matthew 7 says, many will say, I, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do these things? You did not do my will. Mm. Come on. Have you ever noticed that the devil quotes the word and fairly accurately, but always out of its right application? This kind of contorting and twisting the word to fit our agenda. Well, I've never seen it as bad as it was in the 90s with uh, escapism theology. But we better wake up and read the word for what it actually says and not what we would like it to say. Mm -hmm. The fruit of these deviations will always be evident. As I pick up in verse 10, you'll see what happens after these events. Then King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. He saw an altar in Damascus and sent to Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar with detailed plans for its construction. So Uriah the priest built an altar in accordance with all the plans that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus and finished it before King Ahaz returned. Wow. And he was motivated. Yeah, it's, it's uh, a time-money contract. When the king came back from Damascus and saw the altar, he approached it and presented offerings on it. He offered up his burnt offering and grain offering and poured out his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his fellowship offering on the altar. The bronze altar that stood before the Lord, he brought from the front of the temple from between the new altar and the temple of the Lord and put it on the north side of the new altar. Wow. King Ahaz gave these orders to Uriah the priest on the large new altar. What kind? The large new altar. Mm. Offer the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering, the king's burnt offering and his grain offering, and the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their grain offering and their drink offering. Sprinkle on the altar all the blood of the burnt offerings and sacrifices. But I will use the bronze altar for seeking guidance. Right. And Uriah the priest did just as King Ahaz had ordered. What a little hireling. Ahaz has now become our first megachurch pastor (laughs) since Jeroboam, son of Nebo. And worse yet, it's not in Samaria. It's in Jerusalem. It's on the actual temple. Not just a replica set up with golden calves. Mm. The large new altar is preferred to the one that God designed. And we seem to have such regular diligence to offering on it in a way that didn't really occur when it was on God's altar. All of a sudden he's very interested in the temple sacrifices. Wow. I wonder if he used the same knife he used on his son in the ben Hanoan Valley. Wow. You know, he probably used the same firewood. It's just spreading it around all yeah. over Jerusalem. Got multiple fires yeah. going. Remember, Isaiah prophesied about the difficulty of these times in the stumbling stone. Men will prefer any other alternative than God's prescription. We look for it. It's inside of our hearts, and if it's not crucified, it is what we gravitate to. Verse 17. King Ahaz took away the side panels and removed the basins from the movable stands. He removed the sea from the bronze bulls that supported it and set it on a stone base. He took away the Sabbath canopy that had been built at the temple and removed the royal entryway outside the temple of the Lord in deference to the king of Assyria. Man, if all that wasn't enough, a large new altar, if that wasn't enough, he continues to make modifications to God's design. 
Look, once modifications to God's design start, they never stop. Come on, man. How many Christian artists have you seen start out very pure? They're very uh, passionate about the Word of God and the Spirit leading them and things like that, but they begin to make small compromises, specifically in the area of money, and then they begin to make more and more compromises, and it's no wonder that you hear that they're not even serving the Lord anymore in a couple years. That's because once modifications start, they never stop. The pastor's like that too, he said. Yeah, well, where did Moses get his design for the tabernacle? Where did David get it for the temple? Now contrast that with where Ahaz got his design. And before you just say, bad Ahaz, tell me it's not going on all around us. Mm-hmm. I'm going to prove to you in just a second that it is, undeniably from the text. We live at a unique time where this cycle has made it full circle. Look, modifications never stop because it is sin and sin always spreads from an individual to a community and from the community to the world. One life, one family, one nation. Once one life starts to deviate from the original design, it spreads to a family and then a nation. But look, let's get back to Ezra's final thoughts on Ahaz in Second Chronicles 28. Let's Ahaz, read 24. Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and took them away. He shut the doors... Shut the, the front door! Do you know that the LXX says he locked the doors of the temple of the Lord? I guess Dr. Fauci and the CDC told him to. How do you know we're living in Ahaz's time? Hmm. Oh, I see you put it together, huh? When faithless men that do not trust the Word of God are running the houses of God, when there are men like Ahaz behind the pulpits, it shows up in lockdowns and shutting the temple Doors. Yeah, let that sit for a minute. Now, are you as conflicted as I am? Should the doors be closed? But if Ahaz is in the pulpit, I'm glad they are. The promise of God will not fail. It just shows that the men that are leading are failures. That's what it shows. Tell me that's not a living and active word for our time. It's going on all around us. When Ahaz runs the church, then the best thing that can happen is to close the doors until Hezekiah arrives. The answer is always sons that are better than their fathers. That's always the answer. And we have to come to grips with a couple things here. I don't want Ahaz. I don't want this kind of thing. But once you let Samaria creep in, Once you are taking your designs from Assyria's of the world, then you might as well close the doors because you are no longer serving the function even if the doors are open. When you have corporate slogans in your lobby, when you have lost businessmen on your board, when you no longer follow God's design because of popularity... 
God will shut the doors. And can I tell you, the shut the doors is a kindness? Yes. Why is it a kindness? Because twice in Israel's history it got so bad, he simply just allowed the whole thing to be burned down. Mm -hmm. At least shutting the doors allows for a next generation to open the doors. Yes. Can I tell you we're supposed to open some doors? Amen. That's what you are. You're on stopping wells. You're supposed to return this thing to its right place. That's why we started without any Assyrian influence. It's why we resisted all Samaria. It's why we preferred to meet in living rooms and garages rather than to be conformed to what was going on all around us. This is the hour where your spirit are to be crying out, not decrying Hezekiah. I'm sorry, not decrying Ahaz, but instead saying, Lord, make me Hezekiah. As we continue to read, now is the moment to start thinking about the answer that God gave Isaiah. Seal up my word in my disciples. Knowing that these days were coming, what he said is seal up the word inside of the disciples and let your family be a sign and symbol for them to see. Tell me that it's not a message for us this evening. It is for us. We're standing in Ahaz's day, but we have Isaiah's revelation. Yes. What we need is sons and disciples that are like Isaiah and can stand the test of time until we see Hezekiah return. Bear this in mind as we keep reading. Brother Linton, if you're reading off that screen, just keep going to our notes stop. In every town in Judah, he built high places to burn sacrifices to other gods and provoke the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. The other events of his reign and all his ways from beginning to end are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of Jerusalem, but he was not placed in the tombs of the kings of Israel. Why wasn't he placed in the tombs of the kings of Israel and why does Ezra want you to know that? Because he didn't belong with them. He's destined to be there. His birthright was to be there. There's a promise of God that should guide him. But like Esau, he rejected what should have been his inheritance. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Please keep going until you run out of notes there. And, And Hezekiah, his son, succeeded him as king. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Come on. In the first month. What? In the first month. In the what? In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord. Opened the front door! And he repaired them. Look, shutting the doors or opening the doors of the temple may say everything about your actual trust in the word of God. Like Judah said, this was all prophesied by Isaiah. And had Ahaz listened, this would have never happened. Had Ahaz actually had the faith to trust in the word of God instead of relying on his own fear, the doors would have not been closed and it wouldn't have had to rely on his son to do this. Listen, Isaiah told Ahaz, ask for a sign. And Ahaz wouldn't do it. So then Isaiah turns to his disciples and he says, do not fear what they fear. 
Don't fear what he fears. Don't call conspiracy what he calls conspiracy. To the law and to the testimony is what you are to believe. How you relate to the word of God. How you interact with the word of God is everything in what you do with those temple doors. Whether they are shut to you or whether they are open to you. Whether you are the ones shutting the temple doors or whether you are the ones opening the temple doors. We're not just talking about physical doors, although we are talking about physical doors. If this church stops being a place where we fear the word of God and we hold the word of God in the highest regard and actually do what it says, then it's very possible that those doors should shut. Why would God keep them open? But this refers more than just a church. This also has to do with your home. This also has to do with your personal life. Are your temple doors open or shut? Is the temple doors of your home open and shut to the word of God? How many of you have ever said, my body is the temple of the Lord? (laughs) If your body is the temple of the Lord, then isn't your mouth the door? It is comes out of it and what goes into it. It's really easy to get this message in an hour and 20 minutes. We often preach for two hours and 20 minutes. We want it to slow down right here and stop thinking about Ahaz for a minute. And start thinking about your body as the temple and what your mouth says about that. Are you hiding Assyrian altars in there? Mm. Do you have an Assyrian altar of educational expectations for success in your children because you're faithless? Do you have a Samaritan view in your heart that leaks out of your mouth regarding your acceptance in the world around it? I mean, because God... He can shut the doors of the temple of your body so that you no longer speak for Him. And He can open them and cleanse those altars. This saying is exactly like it was in Jesus' death. In Matthew 22, Jesus says, Hey, let me tell you what the kingdom of God is like. Like a father who wants to have a banquet wedding for his son. That's God's promise to you, the bride. Matthew 23, seven woes to the leaders that were from the house of David. Because the temple doors were open, but they needed to be closed. And he was prophesying because they were actually faithless regarding the will of God. They were rejecting the truth of the word of God standing in front of them. In Matthew 24, he clearly says to all of us, if you remain faithful to the very end, then you'll be saved. That's not being taught anywhere. In Matthew 25, he says, I'm going to separate you. 
those in the body, like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And it'd be based on what you did or did not do. If that does not cause us to reflect very personally on how we're raising our children, how we're pastoring our wives, how we are participating as the temple of God, and whether our doors should be open or shut. Are you speaking worthy words? Do you have a tape recorder with you all day today? Would you be proud of what was coming out of the temple of the Lord? How many of you go to the temple of the Lord to hear complaint? How many of you go to the temple of the Lord to hear criticism? How many of you go to the temple of the Lord to hear a lack of gratitude? How do you enter the temple of the Lord? Thanksgiving. Tell me that we don't need to take a minute and get Ahaz out of our hearts and lives. It's all good talking about somebody else, but we have to be refined. If it's true that it's hard for the house of God to be saved, and the apostle said it was, then how seriously do we need to take a passage like this tonight? See, we're right there with you. We're like, oh man, we'll do three chapters from Isaiah. We'll do six chapters from Revelation. We'll tie it up with Matthew, Envy, and Eschatological Until we started praying through the tabernacle and examining our own hearts. We had to get rid of a desire to impress you. We had to get rid of a desire to teach. Well, we had to get after actually the will of God instead of misapplying the word of God. Would you stand to your feet? The saints, it's probably appropriate at this moment that we connect with you dots. You just heard my father reference the separation of the sheep and goats that are those that are among the flock of God. We're not speaking about those that are outside of his house. We're talking about you, talking about me, us being separated by those who did or did not follow after the Father. Yesterday, our pastors just so happened to give us a cue as to how we cleanse the temple in our own lives. Because make no mistake, there is Ahaz in this room. I know there's Ahaz that I'm tearing out, and you're hearing us discussing that this morning praying and repenting. You do have large altars that are next to the altar of God in your heart. The question is, will you leave it and let it grow until it closes the temple doors? Or will you cleanse it and flush it out? In the past, we've been able to get away with a 60% obedience or a 70% wholehearted effort. And the Lord is clearly warning us about the days that we're walking into. Much like he did Pastor Matthew so many years ago about what was ahead of him. That his life needed to be turned upside down entirely. You've walked in leadership. You started to manage your home. You've partnered in the gospel with your pastors. Yes, saints, that will not save you. What will save you and cause you to stand firm to the end is that funnel effect that they were speaking about. That you hold on to not a thing. And you find out what it looks like to have the spirit of holiness pouring through you faster than you're able to respond on your own. 
We're not looking for a long emotional response. We're looking for men and women to put into practice what we heard about yesterday, where there is absolutely no reserve left. You're turning your life upside down to have his spirit of holiness be what fills you till it overflows. We're going to begin to pray together. This is not something that we can do for you. This is something that your God gives you as a gift, and we choose whether or not we want to participate in it. Holy Father, we thank you for this opportunity. But you are a good Father to us, and you have provided what we need, and you spoke to us in advance. But you have sent your servant 